Hello, welcome back to another episode of Dilettantry. My name is Sean Zabashi, and I hope you're doing well, whatever day it is for you. In this episode, we'll continue our look at Jack Goody and his thoughts on writing and speech and Western Africa. Goody talks a lot about the impact of writing on logic. Connected to logic is what Goody calls the increased formalization of certain forms of logic that he thinks results from writing. For example, Goody talks about a simple form of argument developed by the Greeks called modus tollens. If A, then B. If not B, therefore not A. If this coffee is boiling, it will burn my tongue if I drink it. If my tongue doesn't get burned, then it wasn't boiling. Pretty basic stuff. Goody says that this type of argument isn't very different from the types of arguments found in oral societies. Proof and logic and argumentation are still important in oral societies. But Goody says the difference is that the modus tollens developed in a written tradition. He says that this leads to tighter formulation. I think we can bring in some observations of Ong's here. I mentioned in the Ong episode, Ong's point that with writing, words have to do more since they're the only thing that communicates, whereas the spoken word is combined with facial expression, tone, gesture, and the whole present context. With writing, the writer must make sure that just the words will sufficiently communicate. And often they're meant to communicate something to a person they don't even know. So the Greeks formulated the modus tollens in an abstract, explicit form, same with other similar logical arguments. This abstraction seems to be a result of writing. If A, then B. What are A and B in this scenario? They don't perform their phonetic function here, they're placeholders, variables, right? This type of abstract, explicit formulation, Goody says, is, quote, critical to science and to all systematic knowledge, unquote. Oral societies use the modus tollens argument in everyday life, but they don't formalize it in this abstract way. So Goody thinks there's a relationship between writing and certain types of logic and categorization. We'll look at other aspects of this as we continue. It is connected to a lot of his other observations. He also thinks there might be a relationship between writing and what's called general skepticism. Goody cites the work of the famous anthropologist E.E. E. Evans Pritchard, who wrote a study of the Azande people in the 1930s that became a classic of anthropology. The Azande are a people living in Africa, in modern-day Congo, South Sudan, and the Central African Republic. Evans Pritchard studied witchcraft and magic in their culture. The part that's interesting to us is his writing about skepticism in the Azande culture. Since skepticism is such an important part of Western Enlightenment rationality, and atheism, right? <laughs> Atheists love talking about skepticism. They have like magazines named after it. Um, you might assume that societies with widespread belief in magic and witchcraft don't have much skepticism at all. But Evans Pritchard says this isn't true. He cites many examples of specific skepticism. What I mean by that is most Zani believe that there are genuine witch doctors with what I, a secular person, would call supernatural abilities. But most Zande also believe that there are witch doctors who are just pretending to have these abilities. In fact, a lot of Zande think that most witch doctors are frauds. They have specific skepticism towards specific witch doctors, but they never make the leap to general skepticism of witch doctory itself. I don't, I don't know if witch doctory is the proper word. Probably not. But I love this quote. Evans Pritchard goes as far as to say that, quote, faith and skepticism are alike traditional, unquote. That's an interesting thing to think about. Faith and skepticism are alike traditional. Goody cites similar examples of specific skepticism from ancient China, too. 
Also, in ancient Greece, in ancient Greece, a bunch of texts were written called the Hippocratic Corpus, medical writings associated with Hippocrates, although not necessarily written by him. One of the texts, called On the Sacred Disease, shows general skepticism, maybe one of the first examples of it. The unnamed author is against rituals that were said to purify the body. To use our modern language, he is skeptical that the supernatural can affect the natural. Obviously, the terms natural and supernatural betray a materialistic view of the universe, so it's a little hard to talk about this stuff neutrally without already implying a metaphysics. In fact, this text might be an early example of that kind of thinking, splitting the world into the categories natural and supernatural. Obviously, the majority of Greek society still believed in the supernatural. I mean, many people in all cultures still do today. And the writer of that medical text probably still believed in things that we call supernatural. The importance of this, why I'm bringing it up, is that Goody suggests that writing is probably a factor in the development of general skepticism. Writing leads to recording, and the resulting accumulation of information can make you see trends that you wouldn't see otherwise. If there's a belief in a society that witch doctors can heal, although some are frauds, and there's no writing, confirmation bias comes in and people remember the successes a lot more than the failures. But if there's writing, you have data to deal with, not just your own recollection. You can record every instance of a witch doctor attempting to heal someone, and then after five years be like, wait a second, the people were only healed 13% of the time. And then you could, you know, analyze it more and go, wait, of those 13% that were successful, they all seem to be random. It's not like there's one or two witch doctors that were super good and a bunch of frauds. No, it's randomized. Hmm, etc., etc. Obviously, it doesn't happen as neatly as that. It's a long process that takes centuries, but, you know, that's it in a nutshell. More records of a type of event means that universals can be better distinguished from particulars. The next step, who could he attributes to the Greeks, is an abstract formulation of the universals. If A, then B. If not B, therefore not A. Stuff like that. Although, of course, not everything can be formalized like that. An important thing to mention, something that's found in a lot of Goody's observations, is that often he isn't concerned with the necessary results of writing, but the potential results. We can see this with his view of general skepticism. He's not saying that the existence of writing in a society leads to general skepticism, like there's a big arrow pointing from writing to general skepticism. No, he's saying that for general skepticism to develop, the society must have writing, or be influenced by writing. Writing is a necessary precursor to general skepticism, but it doesn't necessarily lead to general skepticism. The Egyptians and the Mesopotamians had writing, but they didn't formulate general skepticism. The Greeks did. The point is, the Greeks couldn't have done so without writing. I hope that makes sense. Necessary, but not sufficient, as they say. In the Greek case, Goody says that the growth of Greek science might have come not from the consonant vowel alphabet, but from the general freedom that results from phonetic alphabets. With fewer letters, more people can learn it, meaning that writing is not restricted to like an elite class or a class of scribes who make a living off writing. Writing can be spread to a wider segment of the population, leading to more freedom of expression and the ability for intellectual inquiry to take place outside of religious or government settings. Goody also points out that Everything isn't due to some single cause or some unique cause. Things can be multi-causal. I mean, I personally would say that everything is multi-causal in a certain way, right? In this case, with ancient Greek, writing is a necessary cause of general skepticism, but so is the freedom of expression and inquiry that results from the script that only has a couple dozen letters, right? Multi-causal. 
A lot of Gaudi's fieldwork in Western Africa involved oral literature, so he spends a lot of time comparing his observations to Perry and Lord's, as well as critiquing their studies. Gaudi spent a lot of time, spread over decades, studying the Lodaga people of northern Ghana in Western Africa. Among the Lodaga, there is a myth called the Bagra. It's about as long as the Odyssey, and it's recited orally in ceremonial contexts, usually taking around eight hours to perform in its entirety. But there are different versions of the Bagra, depending on what ceremony it is. Like there's a funeral Bagra, for example. I'm not sure how different they all are. First, the maybe more subtle effects of writing. I mentioned last episode that the recording of recitations from oral traditions might affect the recitation itself. If a performer is dictating the oral poem to someone who's writing it down, it's often done outside of its normal context. Context that could be as simple as an audience, or something as complex as ritual and ceremony that often surrounds oral literature, as in the case of the Bagra. The person recording the oral literature, often an outsider, becomes the new audience, and the performer might tailor their performance to this person, um, instead of in its natural context, perhaps leading to diminishment of some things or embellishment of others. Like, maybe the version given to the person recording is more of a narrative or a summary, cutting out things that are irrelevant for the general story, but would be appreciated by an audience of that culture. And the only evidence we have of Homer's epics is the written record. There are fragments of Homer dating to the ancient times, the oldest being fragments etched in clay, likely graffiti in modern-day Ukraine. I guess the people doing graffiti in the olden times were nerds. You might have heard in 2018 there was a big hubbub when 13 verses were discovered on a clay tablet in Greece, dated tentatively to the 200 CE. But although we have ancient fragments, the oldest complete versions come from the Middle Ages. I wonder how similar the lines from these ancient fragments are to the corresponding lines in the medieval copies. If anyone knows, please tell me. Why this is important for our discussion is that it means that the Homeric epics relied quite considerably on writing to travel all the way down from history to the present. Is it possible that this affected the poems themselves? We don't know when they were originally written down. There could be hundreds of years where people were performing it orally and writing it down, and if writing does affect aspects of the poetry itself, there was surely like a feedback effect, right? Perry and Lord thought that the Homeric epics were dictated by an oral performer and written down by somebody else. We talked about all their reasoning two episodes ago, the formulas they found, their idea that recitation of oral poetry is part memorization and part improvisation. Goody says that before the 1960s, pretty much all oral literature was recorded this way, by dictation, where it had to be written down as the performer was reciting, in the present. Sometime around the 1960s, a tape recorder was invented, and oral products could be recorded and written down later. For any pedants out there, yes, there were earlier recording devices, like phonographs and stuff, but they were much less portable. And, you know, I imagine carrying a phonograph through northern rural Ghana would be quite the feat. Goody recorded the Lodaga myth, the Bagra, once by dictation in 1950, outside of its performative, ritualistic context, and seven times by tape recorder, sometimes in the ceremonial context, sometimes recited only for the recording device. The dictated version is much longer, and also more elaborate and more deliberate, to use Goody's words. I think more deliberate means like something like using fewer excess words. Goody also says that yes, most oral compositions contain an element of improvisation and an element of memorization. 
But he points out that from culture to culture and between individuals of a particular culture, how much of the oral composition is memorized and how much is improvised is not fixed, and there's actually quite a lot of variety. The Lodaga often play a xylophone-like instrument. Goody says that sometimes the lyrics and the notes in the xylophone were created beforehand, sometimes it was pure improvisation, sometimes the lyrics were of a well-known song, but the notes on the instrument were improvised. Goody recorded the Bagra in 1972 and 1981, and he says that some performers were more improvisational than others. In other words, some of the performers' versions of the myth were more different from all the other versions of the myth, and some were more similar. But the influence of writing goes even further than this for Goody. The way that Ong and McLuhan talk about oral cultures is kind of looking at cultures as though they are like self-contained systems, as though they're in their own boxes. This culture here, this culture was oral. Let's compare aspects of it to this culture, like this literate one over here. This culture is literate using a logographic script. Let's analyze it based on that. But Goody doesn't just sit in his study reading books. He actually goes out into the world, into Western Africa, observing the world as it is, all jumbled together, not just in these nice little categories which we can use to simplify it. Goody points out that a culture can have no form of writing, be a completely oral culture, but still be influenced by writing. It might sound weird, but cultures aren't these little separate, self-contained, conceptual boxes. They interact with each other quite often. So if writing does change aspects of individual thought and societal structure and other things like that, then it's pretty easy to imagine these different ways of thinking and being diffusing into oral cultures that interact with written ones, and maybe even from those oral cultures to other oral cultures that they interact with, but have never interacted with a written culture. Goody brings up an example that will make this make a lot more sense. His example is multiplication tables, or times tables. Most people can do simple multiplication in their head or out loud, i.e. orally, without the direct influence of writing. But this is possible because in school, we memorize times tables very much an impact of writing. It would be pretty hard to imagine the different numbers in the form of a table if you were in a culture without writing. Writing changes how we organize the knowledge of basic multiplication. In a similar way, elements of thought that have been influenced by writing can affect what seems purely oral. Right, like how a person from an oral culture giving a speech and a person from a literate culture giving a speech both look like they're doing the same thing, but the literate person has the advantage of organizing his thoughts beforehand with writing. And Goody suggests that these influences can spread from a culture influenced by writing to neighboring cultures that aren't. Like the basic forms of logic I talked about earlier. Writing might be a necessary precursor for the abstract formulation of the modus tollens, if A, then B, if not B, therefore not A. But once it's developed, it's pretty easy to explain without writing to someone else, right? Essentially, what Goody is saying is that it's not like there's one type of oral literature. There can be oral literature in societies that don't know about writing, like Polynesia or Sub-Saharan Africa before a certain level of globalization. There can be oral literature in societies that are in contact with other societies that do use writing. There can be oral literature in societies that have writing, but only use it for specific purposes, like the early forms of writing in ancient Mesopotamia, when they just use it for administrative purposes and economic things. There can also be oral literature in societies that do have a written literature, but it's not in the vernacular, it's in an elite language. Like in the Middle Ages, the elite language was Latin, but there were lots of folk tales in various parts of Europe in the vernacular, oral folk tales. Another example... Um, it, it's debated when exactly Greece acquired writing from the Phoenicians for themselves, 
But there was other writing in other places in the Mediterranean, right? Phoenicia itself, Egypt, etc. There was probably some contact between these pre-literate Greeks and these other literate cultures, maybe incidental, maybe trade relationships. Plus, there could have been some awareness of the older forms of Greek writing, Mycenaean Greek, like Linear B. So it's possible that even if the Homeric epics were part of an oral tradition, it could still have been influenced by writing. They were probably at least composed in a culture aware of writing. The main thing that Perry and Lord point to as evidence that the Homeric epics were orally composed is the formulas that we talked about. But Goody points out other features of the epics that have more in common with written rather than oral literature. There are things like lists, for starters. Remember Ong's quote that oral societies have nothing as neutral as a list? Well, in Homer's epics there, there are some lists, strangely. Another thing is narrative structure. A linear beginning, middle, and end is not often found in oral recitations. They more often start at some point than go, oh yeah, but before that this happened. They jump around a lot more since they don't have writing to use as a structuring tool. Another aspect of the Homeric epics that is more found in written literature is how rigidly they obey the meter of the poems, the dactylic hexameter. Of course, this could be a result not of its original composition, but the years of copying it down. But it could also be a result of interacting with writing when it was originally composed. The meter could be like the multiplication table example, developed with writing, but transmitted to oral cultures. Goody spends a lot of time talking about the two waves of literacy that swept through sub-Saharan Western Africa in recent centuries, partly to point out the differences between situations surrounding societies becoming literate. The first wave was Arabic writing, as Islam spread below the Sahara. The second wave was European writing, with colonialism. In northern Africa, of course, the Egyptians had one of the earliest writing systems in the world. Then syllabic scripts that originated from the same Phoenician or Canaanite source that the Greek alphabet did spread down the eastern coast to Ethiopia. Islam spread through northern Africa all the way to Spain in the 7th and 8th centuries. But it wasn't until around the year 1000 that Islam made inroads into sub-Saharan Western Africa. This is important both for the Lodaga that we've been talking about and the Vi in Liberia, who we'll eventually get back to. There's no knowledge of systems of writing that developed in sub-Saharan Africa before colonialism, although some were developed independently after. A key aspect of this influence of writing from Islam in sub-Saharan Western Africa is how restricted it was and is. We can compare the Muslim influence to the Christian missionaries that accompanied European colonialism. Since the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, then translated into Greek completely, then into Latin, then into various vernaculars, reading it in its original language wasn't seen as super important because it would be super challenging, and especially not to Protestants. So Christian missionaries generally encouraged various African linguistic groups to adapt their spoken language to the Latin script so the Bible could be translated into their language. But the Quran was written in Arabic originally, and although it's written in an older form of Arabic, called Quranic Arabic, Arabic is still widely spoken, so there's much more of an emphasis on reading the Quran in its original language, rather than translating it into vernaculars. Plus, the Quran, since it's more recent than the older New Testaments, isn't just some guy named John describing what Jesus did decades after the fact. No, the Quran is supposed to be the exact words that the angel Gabriel spoke to Muhammad, recorded over a period of two decades. So, more of an emphasis is placed on reciting it as it was originally written, because 
those are the exact words of divinity. So a lot of Muslims who don't speak Arabic can still read the Quran and make the proper noises, while not knowing exactly what those sounds mean. A small number of people in sub-Saharan Western Africa did learn Arabic. Some learned how to read the Quran without learning Arabic, but most didn't learn either. So the influence of writing from the spread of Islam was less on an individual, cognitive level and more on a widespread societal level. Goody says, though, that its influence was felt in more areas than one might suppose. We can quickly jump back to Perry and Lord's fieldwork in Yugoslavia, where they looked at oral poets there to try and see if their hypotheses about Homer and oral literature in general matched with reality. Goody looks at their work very carefully. It's very line by line, so I'm not going to go into all of it. But he shows that, just like with the Greek case, although the tradition might be oral, it's still influenced by writing, since obviously people in 1930s Yugoslavia encounter writing, even if they aren't literate themselves. In one case, a reciter of the oral poems that Perry and Lord transcribed from was Muslim, a religion of the book, a tradition very influenced by writing. And although he couldn't read, he could recognize the letters, he learned some songs from a songbook, for example. So even though he was, I guess not technically literate, he could still kind of half read. And maybe more importantly, his whole worldview was shaped by religion that was very reliant on writing. But back to Sub-Saharan Western Africa. So Arabic was not widely learned or used among individuals. The effects are of a more widespread societal nature. But even on a widespread societal level, its use was limited, since in later centuries, Writing became such an important skill for anyone involved in the bureaucracies that run countries, anyone involved in business at a more than local level. You might assume that this has been the case since writing was introduced. But when Islam reached the northern kingdoms of Ghana, writing was known about and learned by some, but there was no stigma one way or the other, being literate or non-literate. Often the chiefs of societies didn't know how to read and write. The influence could be the adoption of certain aspects of the Abrahamic tradition, Goody says that Islam affects the magical and religious activities of non-literate cultures most obviously. It seems like at the beginning, when Islam and its writing would be introduced into a society, using it to communicate with God or spirits was more important than using it to communicate with other people. The Asante people of Ghana had a collection of Arabic manuscripts from the 1800s, and 90% of them were focused on magic. This use of Islamic writing meant that its influence would kind of spread across society, affecting even the non-literate. The Fulani people of Western Africa often refer to events occurring in King Solomon's time. King Solomon, of course, was king of Israel in the 10th century BCE. Solomon appears in their legends often as the source of certain rituals. Some scholars point to this as evidence that the ancient Fulani were in contact with people from the Middle East, but Goody and me think it's far more likely that this comes from more recent contact with Islam. This is interesting. I didn't know this. Apparently in the esoteric, mystical traditions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, King Solomon is often said to be the source of magic too. Islam also changed how people understood time. It introduced a calendar and the lunar cycle. Writing allows for the day to be divided into more abstract categories. With Islam, a major part of this is prayer, since they pray five times a day. In purely oral societies, the key points in the day are usually only the obvious ones, like sunrise and sunset and midday. How they viewed space was also changed, not just with writing, but with what accompanied it. 
more ways of measuring, numbering, recording observations, that sort of thing. Written references to far-off places widened their conception of the world. References in Islamic literature to areas in the Middle East made it so those far-off regions were thought about by the West African convert a lot more and made their conception of the Middle East more detailed. Rather than Jerusalem and Mecca just being places really far away over there somewhere, they were places that were very important and where very important events happened. To someone steeped in the Abrahamic tradition, Jerusalem is very different than Mecca, although they're both important. Also, Muslims face Mecca to pray, another way the introduction of Islam into a society would change their conception of space. Goody spends a lot of time analyzing the Ganja Kingdom, which is roughly divided into three main groups of people. The rulers in charge of the kingdom, the commoners who mainly farm and hunt, but also are warriors and magicians, and Muslims who mainly trade but are also involved with magic. The commoners, for the most part, speak local languages and had ancestors living where they do before the Ganja kingdom even existed and practice local religion and customs. The commoners base time mainly on farming, what crops are planted and harvested when, that sort of thing. Similarly, their festivals are determined by season. They don't have very much knowledge about lineage, like how far back their family tree goes. Nearby societies that are oral and non-hierarchical have more knowledge about their lineages. This is because in Ganja, that role was taken over by the government. The government uses two ways of understanding time. The Islamic understanding, based on the lunar cycle, meaning a year is 12 cycles of the moon, an understanding of time which manifests most dramatically in public ceremonies based on the key moments of Muhammad's life, and the more local, traditional understanding, based not on the moon but the sun, and the cycle of the sun that we call seasons. They have a whole other set of ceremonies in this local tradition. The government also understands time in a dynastic way, since they have more knowledge of genealogy and past rulers than the commoners. However, their knowledge is largely oral and not super accurate. Sometimes they refer to the written record of the Muslims to help them remember the lineage and history, but still, most important events of the past aren't attributed to the leaders of the time. Instead, this is interesting, they coalesce around a common hero in Legends who is named Niduera Jakpa. It would be like Americans eventually forgetting under which president certain things happened and attributing it all to George Washington. Who abolished slavery again? Oh, uh, George Washington. Who was the commander-in-chief during the World War II? Oh, uh, I believe that was George Washington. Who was the first black president? Oh, um, George Washington. <laughs> but at the same time, there are literate scribes who sometimes make accurate records of historical events based on a calendar that starts with the year of the Hijira, when Muhammad went from Mecca to Medina in 622 CE in the Gregorian calendar. Something else that's really cool is the different weeks in the Ganja society. For the commoners, they have a week based on market days that's six days long, but the Muslims introduced the seven-day week. So in Ganja, these two weeks exist simultaneously. In the neighboring Asante society to the south, the two weeks exist simultaneously, but they also add together to create a 42-day cycle when the weeks match up, like six, 6 times 7 being 42. There's often this dichotomy people make between linear time and cyclical time. Linear time is designating a certain year as year 1, then building upon it. Like the linear calendar, I use, says that this is the year 2020. 
and circular time is associated with less modern societies, often ones without writing, where time is based more on the cycle of the seasons and related factors, like when to plant and when to harvest. Goody points out that this dichotomy is not as strict as some seem to imply. Every society is some of both types of understandings. Like for me, in a European settler colony that bases its time on the Gregorian calendar, a linear calendar that begins around the time of Jesus, my society still understands time partly in a cyclical way. I mean, obviously, I live through the seasons, that's cyclical, but we have a cycle of holidays and traditions that recur every year. Similarly, in oral societies, people still remember important events that occurred like two summers ago. The linear versus cyclical distinction is more about what's emphasized in a society. Goody implies that writing may be a key part of an emphasis on a linear understanding of time, since writing allows for information to be more fixed, which means you can fix a year to be year zero or year one, and then start counting from there. So that's a brief look at the introduction of Islamic writing. Now let's look at the introduction of European writing. Arabic writing was limited both in who was literate and what writing was used for. There were still multiple uses of writing, but for most, the magical and religious aspect was primary. But more modern literacy, associated not with Islam, but with European or European-style education, leads to a different situation. I mentioned that even the religious aspects from Europe, Christian missionaries, had a different attitude towards writing than the earlier Islamic influence, since the Bible wasn't as strongly tied to the languages it was originally written in as the Quran is. But of course, European influence wasn't just religious. Along with this modern European literacy came colonialism, leading to states rather than kingdoms and tribes and so on, as well as different forms of economy, politics, media, pretty much everything. It was a lot more totalizing than the earlier impact of Islamic literacy. There's a term, dual economy, often used to describe the economic situation in colonial or post-colonial countries. A dual economy means that two economies exist side by side, one based on local needs and one based on global export. But he says that literacy plays a big role in this divide, since obviously modern commercial and political enterprises are heavily reliant on the written word, right? Um, they're simply more complicated and far-reaching, rather than remaining relatively local and interpersonal. This means that whether someone is literate or not affects their place in society now. If they are literate, they can remove themselves from the local context and work within the national context, reaping monetary benefits. In the earlier situation, where literacy was primarily religious in nature, there was no shame or major benefit whether you were literate or not. It just meant that you could talk to God or gods or spirits in a different way. But with this later situation, it affects many spheres of life and provides social mobility. The introduction of a more totalizing literacy can split a population in two. It also often upended the existing power structures. African rulers before colonialism were barely literate, even if the society was influenced by Islamic writing. But after colonialism, literacy was pretty much required to become a member of the elite. There were other factors affecting the shifting of elites, besides the fact that most African rulers previously were non-literate. Goody gives the example that sometimes slave-owning elites would be badgered by colonial powers to send their sons to European-style schooling, but the slave-owning elites didn't trust the Europeans, for obvious reasons, so they would send a slave instead of their son, meaning that the slave would be better suited for a prestigious career in the future. <laughs> I mean, imagine being one of those slaves. Wait, what? What? Oh, don't. Oh, please don't send me to school. Oh, stop it. 
The non-literate people are also increasingly able to be dominated in this new modern political and economic world. Laws are written. In court, you have to swear in a book. How discombobulating it would be for someone non-literate, right? Imagine playing a game where you couldn't read the rules. You could only ask other people to explain the rules. And those people often have an incentive to lie. Literacy also impacts the mostly non-literate village life, since the few who went to school become in charge of keeping track of who owes who what, that sort of thing. Also, written communication becomes used more often, as more people work or go to school in the city, and long-distance communication becomes more necessary. Even if most people in a village were non-literate, the few who went to school would help with these tasks. The introduction of writing into society, or at least writing that has less limited functions than the Arabic writing we looked at, creates a whole bunch of dichotomies. It can lead to the creation of two cultures in a society, high culture and low culture. Low culture is more orally based, like folk tales in medieval Europe, or songs sung by traveling entertainers, while high culture is much more based on writing, like philosophy or poetry in medieval Europe. Writing also leads to a heightening of the rural-urban divide, since now the elite jobs in the cities aren't determined by whether you are the offspring of a king or something like that, but it's based in large part on literacy and schooling. These highfalutin urban jobs are higher paying, which leads to higher paying jobs being associated with literacy. This means that book knowledge versus practical knowledge becomes a binary with value judgments. Book learning and knowledge is seen as more important and more worthwhile. Plus, governments see literacy as important, and many countries have initiatives to increase national literacy, stressing its importance, which is perhaps another factor that makes the literate look down on the non-literate. They see the non-literate as being insufficiently patriotic or something. Knowledge increasingly becomes seen as coming solely from books, besides knowledge of household chores and stuff. And not just from books, but from outside the family, teachers take over many educational roles previously provided by family members or community elders. In oral cultures, elders have the most knowledge because they have the most experience. But in book cultures, elders are passed by because they don't keep pace with the newest knowledge. Or, especially in transitional societies like, like the Lodaga, the elders often aren't literate. Let's continue talking about elders for a bit, actually. One of Goody's observations, something the Lodaga themselves are also aware of, is the different ways of approaching and obtaining knowledge in oral versus literate spheres. The Lodaga have a very broad and deep understanding of the importance of speech. For them, traditional knowledge and speech are very closely related. Goody says that traditional knowledge is speech for them, because all traditional knowledge is obtained and spread with the help of speech. It is also spread by ritual, dance, gesture, but speech always accompanies these acts. Somewhat paradoxically, language itself is not considered traditional knowledge. It's considered to be an inherent characteristic of people, something that doesn't need to be taught. Traditional knowledge is acquired from the elders of the society, and since in oral cultures the only source of historical information is memory, there's a general notion that the older you are, the more you know. There's a lot of respect for elders, and the information they know and spread. Ceremonies are the most important form of transmitting this traditional knowledge, the most important of these ceremonies being the recitation of the Bagra myth. But something weird comes up. Goody's observation is that when one has memorized the Bagra, it doesn't seem to Goody like they learned all that much that was new. Most of the knowledge contained in the Bagra seems to be widely disseminated in day-to-day -day life. 
it's kind of like this ritual adds an emotive importance to the knowledge that the students already know. It seems to me like this emotive importance comes from the fact that this knowledge is formalized in the form of myth, acted out in the ceremony, and transmitted often in secret rooms. Even though the students already know the knowledge, since they live in a society structured by this traditional knowledge, all these things that surrounds this ceremonial learning of it makes it feel more special. We can look at Goody's description of a special type of bagra, the funeral bagra. The bagra, as you may have guessed, that's performed at funerals. He says, quote, In addition, there's also a special recitation, the funeral bagra, where little or nothing is imparted on a cognitive level other than a general statement of the joys and dangers of life and death. This is the most secret of all the performances. When I at last heard it, I was told, now you know all. In fact, I knew little more than when we started. What I had been revealed was a secret, heavily loaded with emotion, as are many funeral chants, but almost nonsense from the semantic point of view. A hallelujah, an alas, an amen, unquote. Isn't that interesting? The most secret of all transmissions of traditional knowledge doesn't tell one much on a literal level. There are other traditional forms of knowledge in the Lodaga society that don't come from the elders. It's information that Lodaga individuals learn from everyday experience, information that comes from a world beyond the human world and is transmitted by spiritual beings. But he doesn't use this term in what I read of him, but it seems like the Lodaga are animistic, believing in a world that is alive, dominated by spirits. Goody analogizes with the folklore of Europe. The Lodaga believe in beings of the wild, that Goody says are like dwarves, fairies, trolls, etc., of European folklore. Goody suggests that these beings might have played a bigger role in European culture and religion before the Abrahamic religions predominated, along with their view of one and only one god. Similar to portions of the Islamic world, where monotheism pushed beliefs in genies or jinns to the side. Goody ties this to writing, too. Writing allows for continuity. Oral religions tend to dissolve into separate cults. Well, maybe cult is too strong of a word, but separate small groups. But with the Abrahamic religions, for example, the book provides a commonality across regions and languages. The Lodaga think that these beings of the wild taught them a lot of things originally, like how to make iron, how to farm. The Bagger tells not only that the beings of the wild did this, but it also describes what they taught, so it can be repeated and the knowledge can be passed down. But the beings of the wild aren't just teachers from the past, they are present in everyday reality. The Lodaga believe they communicate to these individuals daily, often through diviners, specific members of the Lodaga who have the power to see the future or part of the future. Lodaga, as well as believing in these beings of the wild, do also believe in a single creator god, but believe that communication with him is not possible. So the beings of the wild, the spirits, are the source of otherworldly information. So we have three ways to obtain knowledge in Lodaga society, which Goody says is generally the case in oral societies. There's basic, everyday knowledge obtained through everyday interaction. Then there's the more specialized, traditional knowledge that's transmitted in the Lodaga case via ceremonies and the myths that accompany these ceremonies. Then finally, there's the knowledge that conscious entities from outside the human world impart on people. Now's a good time, I think, to take a closer look at the Bagra, and specifically how it's learned and how it's transmitted 
and see how it lines up with Perry and Lord's hypotheses about how oral literature is partly memorized and partly improvised every performance. The first time Goody recorded the Bagra, he described one person learning it line by line from his grandfather, and described an old chief gathering young male pupils together, making them repeat it line by line, then quizzing them to see if they had it memorized. He says that the Lodaga were concerned with whether a version of the Bagra was correct. After many recordings, though, Goody says that these original observations were either wrong or the Lodaga are not very good at learning the Bagra. Um, obviously, the last one is a joke. He quickly realized the variation between his recordings of the Bagra, varying depending on where and to who it was performed, when it was performed, that sort of thing, even if it was performed by the same person. Goody realized that in his earlier observations, it was true that the Lodaga desired a correct recital of the Bagra, but Goody had overlooked the nuance contained in the term correct. As I've mentioned perhaps too much, in an oral recitation, words are ephemeral, so it's hard to think about whether one part of it was wrong, the reciter has already moved on. Plus, since it's performed ceremonially, it's not like you can yell, pause, hold on, I think you said, I think that was wrong, let's, let's back up, but let's repeat it with the correct words. But it goes even further, in a culture without writing, how can you even check if it's correct? I suppose you could find an elder, an expert reciter, but still, the underlying problem is that even they can be sure that they are correct. Memory is fallible, and that's all they have. But it goes even further. Goody suggests that, to add to all of this, since the distinction between creation and copying, composing and performing, is a result of writing, the Ludaga might not place the same importance on exact repetition. This is something we'll go over a lot in future episodes. Goody couldn't find any more examples of line-by-line -line instruction, other than those two stories he heard the first time he visited the Lodaga. The Bagra seems to be learned less from line-by-line -line instruction and verbatim memorization in private, and more from the actual performances. In performances, the reciter recites, and the members of the audience repeat his words. In other words, the Bagra is learned in a situation where checking if it's correct is harder even than with private line-by-line -line memorization. It's quite bad form to interrupt the reciter. One time Goody was given a recital of the Bagra to record outside of its normal ceremonial context. The reciter stopped occasionally to change the tapes of the tape recorder. When the recital stopped as Goody was fiddling with the machines, the reciter and the other Lodaga present discussed what line should be next and like discussed how the recital was going, which is something that's not possible normally in the ceremonial context. The next time the Bagra is recited, it will differ from the previous version. It's not that the Lodaga are not concerned with the original version of the myth, it's just that they don't think about the original like we do. They lack writing and any means of placing the words beside each other to compare. So it does seem like there is an element of memorization and an element of improvisation. But Perry and Lord thought that the memorized parts of Homer were the formulas and the general structure, while the improvised parts were where the formulas were put, how exactly the oral performer achieved dactylic hexameter in every line. Goody never mentions the bagger having any sort of meter, and therefore there are no formulas necessary to make sure the words have the proper meter. I already mentioned that Goody suggested that the meter might have been influenced by writing, but the Lodeca memory is still partially memorization and partially improvisation. Goody uses the term creative reconstruction, or generative recall, to describe Lodaga memory and oral memory in general. 
Goody analyzes the variations between the different examples of the myths, but also the constraints to try to figure out the details of Lodagon memorization. There are, of course, variations on the level of words, which words are used, word order, that sort of thing. And there's also variation on the level of meaning. Various things are described differently, like certain aspects of a complicated ceremony might be mentioned in one version, while other aspects of the ceremony are mentioned in another version. The constants seem to be big, important events, descriptions of activities, and particular parts of the myth are fixed in that way. Like, if someone is asked to summarize the Bible, there will be a variation in what they include and how they tell it, but they're going to remember the snake and the apple part. For instance, in one part of the Bagra, there's a description of a ceremony, and it's complicated, so descriptions vary. But the constant is three stories that are told in connection with it. A story that leads to the beginning of the Bagra, and two stories that mark the beginning of other sections of the Bagra, one of them being a dance. As long as these three stories are included, the recitation is seen as correct. But he says that it seems like the memory of the Ludago works not on the level of rote, verbatim memorization, memorizing word by word, nor at the level of fundamental, deep structure of myth that some mythologists think connect myths cross-culturally, but at the level of what Goody calls event structures. In other words, the major events of the Bagra are remembered, while the word-by-word -word recitation is not. Narrative is a type of this event structure, since narrative links events together in a logical, causal way. Goody thinks that's why the description of the ceremony is tied to these three stories. It's a lot easier to remember a story than a list of actions in a ceremony, because the events in a narrative are all connected. One event prompts the next one. Cause and effect. Goody goes on to say that there's little evidence for exact recollection of something oral. He looks at various potential examples of exact repetition of verbal words in Africa, but throws doubt on most of them. There are specific case-by-case -case reasons for this doubt, but underlying all of these is the fact that oral societies, there's no written version of the utterance to learn from and to correct oneself. Whenever I've had to memorize something, I've always had a text to refer to. Typically, reciting what I can without looking at the text, then checking back to see if I was correct. Goody says that, sure, maybe verbatim memorization is theoretically possible in oral societies. It's not like we immediately forget everything that's said. And there are probably ways of slowly building up to a longer recitation by memorizing smaller chunks of it. But Goody says that since exact memorization is so challenging without a text, maybe oral cultures don't really bother with trying. Maybe non-verbatim memorization performs all the necessary functions. Let's look at Perry and Lord's fieldwork in Yugoslavia again. The songs that Perry and Lord recorded were written down in the early 1800s. This gives us a written basis to compare the recorded songs to. Of the 13 songs written down, 12 of them were in Perry and Lord's collection of songs a century later. Goody says that these songs can be divided into three categories. Songs that are unique from the tradition, songs influenced by the written text, and songs that copy the written text verbatim. Both of the singers that sang songs of the last two categories, influenced by writing or word-for-word -word copied from a text, were literate. The one example of the unique song, the one not found in the 19th century songbook, comes from a non-literate singer. It's similar to a song that was written down, but only as generally as possible. Major details are different, it's 50% longer, there's many differences, the literate singers seem to be not as free in their recitation, due to their association with writing. Even the category of song that isn't a word-for-word -word copy of the written version, merely influenced by it, is still bound to the text. 
Whatever deviations from the text are found in the recorded song are not permanent, but the written version is, and the written version is referred to for further recitations, erasing any deviation. In a purely oral society, the deviations from one performance to the next are built upon by the following performance. This is what Goody means when he says creative reconstruction or generative recall. When remembering something with a certain level of complexity, like a story of a certain length, people don't just recall it verbatim. They recall it giving prominence to the parts they remember best, to the parts that they were impacted by the most, and diminishing or ignoring parts that they don't understand or don't seem important. In Roman and Greek writing on memory, they often reference writing as a metaphor. Goody divides memory into two categories, memory of words and memory of things. Remembering a thing means you can summarize the memory with many different variations of words. But memory of words is verbatim memorization. You memorize the particular words used to describe a thing. Goody says that writing influenced memory in two major ways. First, by highlighting a particular order. People in oral cultures place objects in particular orders, but writing leads to much more insistence on the correct spatial order of things. Many early forms of writing exist primarily in lists of things, if you remember back to the episode where I talked about ancient Mesopotamian writing, there were lots of lists of agricultural products. That was a large part of early writing. Memory of words, of course, is focused not on the general takeaway, but on the order of words. Goody thinks that writing reinforces this focus on spatial and verbal order. The second way writing affected memory has to do with how writing was copied for most of its history. Printing, in the large historical scope of things, is a somewhat recent invention, the mid-1400s. For most of the history of writing, texts were copied by hand, meaning that the person copying would be personally involved in the correct order of the words, and the words in their mind were connected to the motor movements of their hand, much more than we are when we absentmindedly print a PDF nowadays. But he thinks that writing orders the world. Language does this, but writing increases it. Due partially to making words things, like Ong says, giving them an order in space, not just sound, but also because writing leads to lists and tables and formulas and stuff like that. Writing gives us the ability to not just record information, but to organize it and reorganize it as we see fit. It doesn't just lead to more categorization, but clearer boundaries of these categories. Goody also says that writing is usually translated by our minds into sound when we store it. It's suboral, as I mentioned last episode. When most people recall something they read in the book, they recall the sound of the words, or the sound of the words they use to summarize the thing they read in the book. They don't remember an image of the page, generally. Like when you remember something you read in a book, do you remember the font? However, writing does add a greater variety of ways to remember these words. Without writing, to remember what someone said, we have to rely just on our remembrance of hearing or speaking the words. But writing adds other ways of remembering. We can remember what words look like in space. We can remember how they felt to write with our hands. I know someone who remembers things sometimes by writing it out in the air. Writing affects memory also by helping with repetition. Even though when most people try to remember something they use speech, they don't just read a page over and over, the page does give us the ability to repeat something that's going to stay the same and check back to see if our recitation is correct. This discussion of literate versus oral memory brings us back, nicely, to the schooling question that Scribner and Cole brought up after their study of the Vi of Liberia, the question I ended the Ong episode with. The question essentially was, 
Have people like McLuhan, Havelock, and Ong been attributing effects to literacy that are actually caused by schooling? Well, this episode's gone on long enough, so next episode, I will go over Goody's answer to that question, and also talk about a few more things involving Africa and orality and literacy, before finally moving on to McLuhan again. One more episode of Goody and Nuance, I swear. All right, I'll see you next time.